Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, its power, its ability to speak right into our lives, that we can anchor our hearts today to the preeminence of Christ, and we have seen that displayed to the folks in Columbus. We've observed that in their indomitable spirit, in their embracing of Christ-likeness in the community. We've seen that through the generous giving of time, um, just jumping on board with our church family. It just fits with you, Jesus. And so we're just thankful that um, we're seeing Christ-likeness lived out. And yet we also know that we have a lot further to go. There are many little vassal kingdoms that need conquering. There are things that we bring into this auditorium this morning that are problematic and don't fit with who you are. And so we're praying that you would help us today to see those things in a new light, a light of the cross and, Lord Jesus, your preeminence. So help us, we pray, to get this right and to know how we ought to live. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Get your Bibles open to Colossians 1.19, and just let me reiterate to you, College Park, how proud I am of you in your efforts with uh, the folks down at College Park Columbus and to the folks in Columbus. Welcome back to church this week. Glad that you guys are able to worship together, and uh, your pastor, Jim, is so proud of you and what you've done there, and we just want to encourage you to keep doing that, keep bringing the light of the gospel into your community, and we're just going to figure out how to do Christ-likeness Uh, in this moment of opportunity that God has given us, and not miss that opportunity that God has just really dropped into our laps. And so um, just folks in Columbus know we're praying for you, and we love you, want to help you in the long term. So um, let's take a look at Colossians 1.19 this morning, orienting our hearts and lives around this text. It says this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So we draw to close today our intensive study of Colossians 1, 15 to 20. If you remember, this was a hymn or a creed or something like that. And um, this has been a pretty impressive passage. I, I trust you would agree with that. It's been gold. This is like one of the most Christocentric passages in all of the New Testament. And there's been some wonderful lessons that we've learned. In chapter 1 and verse 15 and 16, we learn this kind of frightening but real and powerful statement that we all glorify Christ. It's not a matter of if you glorify Him, it's a matter of how you glorify Him. You either glorify Him by receiving Him as Savior, repenting of your sins and receiving the righteousness of Christ, or you glorify Him by paying the due penalty for your rebellion in hell and thereby glorifying Christ. Regardless, He is preeminent and you will glorify Him. Or to put it in terms like we said, Jesus is the core, what? Deal with it. Good, right. Jesus is the core, deal with it. The second thing we saw in um, verses 17 and 18 was this idea of Jesus being the thing that holds all things together. Remember last week, I love laminin, right? It's the thing that holds all of us together, the protein, but also this thought that Jesus is the one that's the glue that makes everything work. We learned about the need to say three things, like I'm dependent, and I need your power, and I need you more than anything, and hopefully those showed up on your mirror, or your dashboard, or something of that sort. So I tried to help you to understand that Jesus is the core, that this particular passage is, you can think of it this way, that this passage is the core of the core of the core of the core. This is like the center of the center of the core of the center of the core of the center of the core. So you get the point. It's it's like the, the very... 
very center of everything. And what we're trying to do is to figure out how to live with Christ at the center of everything. And then what is the center of Christ? What's the core of who and what Jesus is? So last week we learned that the idea of I'm dependent, I need Christ's help, that's the first step. That you realize, look, my biggest problem is me. But if you just stay there, that's pretty hopeless. You could just lay in bed at night and go, I'm messed up, I'm, I'm, I'm dependent, and I need help. The passage today reminds us where we need to be driven towards. You see, God never breaks us to leave us broken. He never uh, reminds us that we need help without helping us. That's just the kind of God that we have. He doesn't leave us in a hopeless or helpless situation, but rather He calls us, in effect, to trust in Christ. So the passage now dials into this idea of what does it mean to trust Christ in terms of what he is in his power, in his majesty, and in his glory. And the Apostle Paul does this by helping us to understand the substance of who Jesus is. He helps us to know this is what Christ is like, therefore trust him. And the reason he does that is because this church was drifting from Christ. If you look at chapter 2 and verse 23, you'll see that that he says to them, look, you're beginning to buy into some uh, man-made rules. You're beginning to trust in your knowledge. Uh, You're beginning to uh, trust in in mysticism or your past experiences. And, And aren't you glad we don't ever do that? I'm so glad we never trust in our knowledge. I'm so glad I never trust in um, uh, my experiences. I'm so glad that I I never rest on, um, you know, my ability to figure things out. The fact of the matter is we resonate with this passage, don't we? Because we know that it's very easy to to begin to trust the add-ons and miss the Adonai. It's pretty easy for us to begin to focus on the, the means of ministry and miss the master. In fact, I think that many of us have this operating ethic in our life. We just say, just do it. You know, this works to sell shoes. Worked really well in the 1990s, 2000 for Nike. Propelled them. Works really well on uh, Tiger Woods' shirt and uh, a moniker. Just do it. This is a terrible way to approach your spiritual life. In fact, God works really hard in our lives to remind us that we cannot do it. But then the beautiful thing is he doesn't leave us there. He tells us and points us to the one who did do it so that we have a new moniker, a new way to live, which is, in effect, to trust in Christ and to put our hope in him. So in chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, we're going to see that Jesus was the one who fulfilled God's grand plan for reconciliation and that Jesus could do what we could never do and therefore to have a mentality spiritually of just do it is pointless. And we need to learn how to trust in Christ in new and fresh ways. And our text this morning lays before us the worth of Christ and says if Christ is like this, then you can trust him. And this morning what I want to lay before you is, this is what the Bible says Jesus is like. And I just want to remind you, oh, I know you know that you need to trust Jesus. I know that. That's not the problem. The problem is, is that we don't do that. We need to learn how worthy he is so that that drives us to place our trust in him. So the first thing we see is that Christ is defined here as fully God. Verse 19 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In short, this means that Jesus is defined here as fully God. In other words, he is infinitely powerful. Again, Jesus is fully God, and therefore he is infinitely powerful. 
In other words, Jesus is worthy of my trust because of the simple fact that He is God. There's no one more powerful than Him, no one more beautiful than Him, no one who's more able to meet my needs and fix my problems than Him. And in verse 19, it begins with the little phrase, in Him. We saw this phrase in chapter 1, verse 4, and 1, verse 6, where it meant the realm of Christ, but in this context, it means inside of Him, or in the content of who He is, in the substance of His character. In the substance, the essence of who He is, Paul says, this Jesus is essentially fully God. If you boil down the core of Christ, if you tried to figure out, so what is the core of Jesus? What's the center? What is, what, what is He? Answer, Paul would say, He is God. And therefore, worthy of trust. That's why the next little phrase says, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness, all the fullness. That little word full is a really important word in the New Testament. Full of meaning, full of of power. In fact, if you kind of like to dial really deep into uh, word studies and things of that sort, you might might want to take some notes here. I'm going to give you eight different uses of this word full, because the word full is full of meaning. Okay? It's full of meaning. Matthew 9.16 is this. It's used to describe how to fill in the gap in a rip. It's used of a patch. It fills the rip of a garment in Mark or Matthew 9.16. In Mark 6 and verse 43, the word is used to describe the baskets that were full of fish and loaves after one of Jesus' miracles. Remember that flannel graph story? Remember that? Okay? So the baskets are full. Uh, another way it was used is of the Gentiles. It's used in a spiritual sense. Romans 11:12. It's used of the way in which Gentiles are fully included in the family of God. Now, if you are a, not a Jew and you've come to Christ as a Gentile, which is, I would assume, most of us, we ought to love the word full in Romans 11. Because that means that we are fully included in God's family. And all the Gentiles said... Amen. That's right. Romans 13.10 says love fulfills the law of God. So you want to know what real obedience is? What's the heart? What's the core of obedience in the New Testament? Answer, love fulfills the law. Galatians 4.4, of the fullness of time, or when the fullness of time had come, Christ was born. Meaning that at just the right moment, God put Christ in the world when the fullness of time... And then John 1.16, one of my favorite ones. It speaks of Christ's inexhaustible resources of grace that he's able to give to us. So the text says this, From his fullness we have received grace upon grace. Hear that again, that's John 1.16. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Meaning, because Christ is fully God, He is fully able to give you out of the overflow of His life, the substance of who He is, grace upon grace. If that doesn't drive you to pray to Him when you're desperate, I don't know what will. Because here is a Savior who is full of grace, ready to pour it out. It's like a a dam of grace that's there, and you get to go and watch the water spill over top of it and go, bring it on, grace, grace. So while the enemy's throwing everything at you, you're able to drink the grace of Christ. Full, full of spiritual maturity. Ephesians 4.13. Here's how... Here's what I'm laboring, and our staff and elders are laboring to produce in you. Ephesians 4.13, until we attain the stature of the 
fullness of Christ. Meaning that the person and the work of Christ, Christ's likeness, fills up your life so there's no room for any other stuff. Don't you want that? So that Christ's likeness permeates everything, including how you drive, including how you get your kids ready on a Sunday morning. There's nothing. I mean, forget the uh, Garden of Eden and the um, Tree of the Good of Knowledge. Just our temptation would be missing socks in the garden, right? That would make us sin like that, right? Nothing like missing clothes or shoes or a belt. On a, so those are the things. Don't you want Christ's likeness to be that practical? Fullness of the manner, Ephesians 3.19, of the manner in which believers can be filled with the fullness of God. So you can be filled with the fullness of God through the knowledge of Christ. Meaning as you know Christ, you are, you're filled with the knowledge of who He is. So that's what the word fullness means. So when you see that it says that He was the fullness, in Him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, you need to feel the weight, the power, the spiritual enormity of that word. Full is a big word in the Bible. And our English word full doesn't help us. Because we like to use the word to describe interesting things. For example, um, full would be a way that I would describe how I feel when I go to a, mm, um, a good steak restaurant. What's a good steak restaurant in Indianapolis? Best one. Ruth's Chris? Ruth's Chris. Okay, that name's not going to work. Ruth's Chris. I can't say it. St. St. Elmo's. St. Elmo's. Okay. So you go to Ponderosa, okay? And you, and you get a steak, and you're just like, oh, this is so good. You're eating it, eating it, eating it. This is so much better than Ruth's Chris's, okay? You're like eating this steak, right? You're eating it up. And you get the potatoes and the gravy, the whole nine yards, right? And you're walking out of the restaurant, and, and I say to my wife, wow, baby, I am what? Full, right? That's not at all. The idea of this word. You know what the word, here's, here's what the word full means. It's that on a Sunday morning, the song that you're singing, just like for you. It's like God designed the service for your needs. And the word spoken from the mouth of the pastor was like God was reading, like he was reading your mail. God was. He just said it through somebody else. And the text that was preached was right to your heart. And there was this stillness, this sense of God was here and God was speaking and you're so enamored with who God is that you walk out of the service and someone comes in to go, hey, how was it? And you're like, oh, I am so full. That's the word. That's what it means. It's this, you're so satisfied and in love and enamored with the power of who Christ is that it encapsulates and encompasses every part of your being. That's fullness in that sense. And some of you know exactly what that's like. The fullness of God in the person and work of Jesus. It's the fullness of the disciples when they, they see him as full of power. When Jesus steps onto the boat and says, peace, be still, and this raging storm goes, and the disciples look at one another and go, this guy's got power. It's the, it's, it's the, the demon-possessed man who wraps his arms around Christ, who's been set free. And once he was a frothing maniac, it's now a man who's loving on Jesus. And the disciples look at one another and go, this guy's got power. It's the sense God is here. It's the sense in John 1.14 where John says that here we saw the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
He says, we've beheld His glory. The glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's First John 1 where he says, that which our eyes have seen, which our hands have handled, we saw God. We saw Him heal people. We saw Him release people from their demoniac state. We, we were with Him, Peter would tell you, when, when Moses and Elijah showed up. So, you know, when you're talking about that passage, please don't be rough on Peter. I mean, he sees Christ in his fullness and he wants to hang around a little while and set up a KOA. Awesome. Yes, you would too. You'd see the glory of Christ. You don't want to leave when it's like that. It's the stillness of God's presence in a sanctuary and you get done and you're like, I don't want to go home. I just want to stay and linger. It's the fullness of God. And the Bible describes Christ as the fullness of God, His full power, His full glory. But why is that important in this passage? Because this is the Christ, full of power, fullness of God, that when you come and seek Him, He has inexhaustible resources to help people who say, I can't do it. Hebrews 4 says this, 414, since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold, hold fast our confession. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Meaning that you draw into his presence with confidence. Listen, not in yourself. It's that you come and you say, Christ, I got nothing. I got nothing but you. And when all you have is Christ, you've got the world. And to come to him, the Bible says, come, have confidence in him because he's got grace and mercy. He's ready to pour that out into your life because he's full of the presence of God. He is fully God. It pleased him for the fullness of God to dwell in him. He is full of power. He's fully God. And that is why... Paul told the the, uh, Colossae church, don't drift from Christ. Look what he says. See to it then that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. He says, listen, don't be taken captive by little trinkets of advice on how you can fix your life if Jesus isn't in the middle of it. There's a lot of books you can read, a lot of great material on how to fix your life that sprinkles Bible verses all over it. But if Christ isn't the center, it's just another little structure that's conveniently gone around the gospel. And what Paul says is don't drift. Come back to the cross. Come back to Christ. Meaning, look at verse 9 or in Colossians 2. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Answer, why would you be content with little trinkets when you can know the one who has all power. That's his point. And our problem is that too often we trust in our trinkets and not in the Savior. Take these verses, memorize them, do this, you'll be fixed. Answer, no. These are supposed to lead us to Christ. We elevate the means over the Master. We worship the add-ons after the neglect of Adonai. Secondly, it is that he brings peace. Verse 20 says this, And through him to reconcile to himself all things. So here's what Christ does. So if he's God, that means he's all-powerful. He brings peace. Here it is. He did the impossible. What, what, what do you mean, Mark, impossible? The text tells us he brought reconciliation. And that reconciliation was impossible without him. What reconciliation? I don't want to assume that you don't 
that you know exactly what I'm talking about. The reconciliation he's talking about here is the reconciliation between God and man. And the basic message of the Bible is this, that God is holy and mankind is by definition sinful, and that creates a big problem. Man is separated from God spiritually. If left unchecked and not solved, man would have to pay and will pay for his sins eternally in hell to atone for his misdeeds. And there's no way for you to bridge the gap between God and your sinfulness. Well, why? Because every sin requires death. And how many times can you die? Once. How many sins have you committed? A lot more than one. Right? So the reality is, your sins require atonement. You can't self-atone. There's no way. So what that leaves us with is this impossible scenario of God and man with no reconciliation in us. Which is why the only solution to that problem is for someone to die who was sinless, who didn't deserve it, so his death could be counted for others who did sin. And that only happened in one event, and that is the person of Christ in his crucifixion. Which is why Jesus emphatically says... I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Why? Because he's the only one who could do what was impossible, bringing God and man together. And Paul uses this as his great example of who Christ is, that he creates a path to reconciliation that Jesus did what was absolutely impossible. So remind your heart about that truth the next time when you throw up your hands and go, It's impossible. There's no fixing this. You have a Christ who did what was cosmically impossible. And if Christ can bridge the gap between God and you, he can take care of your job. If, if, he, if he can bridge the gap between God and your sinfulness, he can fix your marriage. If Jesus is the, the Christ who bridged the gap between God and our sinfulness, he knows where your child is. He can get him. So rather than throwing our hands up and being all in despair, which really is just another attempt to be your own God, why don't we put that down and say, okay, I can't do this, but Christ, I need your help. But that's not it. There's more. It says that he reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. So it means that the reconciliation was not just about human beings, but it was about the whole created order. That Christ was reconciling and is reconciling everything. And you might think, well, Wait a minute, how does that work? What's that all about? It means that creation fell when mankind fell, and that even at this very moment, everything is still under the overall rebellion and being in process of reconciliation to God. It's being reconciled to Him. Christ, by His death, burial, resurrection, defeated sin, defeated death. He dealt the death blow to the rebelliousness of our world, but He's in the process of bringing it back. Compare it. Or think of it this way, it would be like the final battle in World War II is waged and won, but the surrender documents have not been signed. But make no mistake about it, it's coming. It's coming. Creation groans and waits, but eventually it is simply a matter of time. Christ is right now reconciling all things to himself. So Jesus did what was impossible. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 5. One of the best illustrations I can give this, give you of this, is what happens when the possibility of no reconciliation happening hits the Apostle John in this vision that he has of heaven. And what we see here is the feelings that John has when he thinks for a moment that there's no hope. Revelation 5.1 Then I saw 
in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, seven, sealed with seven seals. Now this scroll probably is an image of the salvific work of God, his plan of salvation, um, the redemption of his people. Verse 2, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And then what happens is there's dead silence. John looks around. He's waiting for someone to stand up, someone to come forward. Verse 3 says, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Verse 4, notice his response, And I began to weep loudly because no one was found to be worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. It's hopelessness. You ever felt like that? You got a thing in your life and you're just weeping because there's just no hope. And someone says, hey, there's hope. There's no hope. There's no possibility. Verse 5, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. I love this. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, verse 6, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes. And he went, verse 7, and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, golden bowls of incense, the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. And look what they say, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. In other words, you did what was impossible. You are worthy. Now listen, that's an image you need to have of Christ when you come with your problems into his presence and say, Lord Jesus, you're the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. You are worthy. Here, Lord, help me. You see, Jesus is the one who can give answers to the hopeless. He's the one who can heal the brokenhearted, give hope to the weary, bring security in the midst of fear, peace in the midst of the storm. He can bring forgiveness where you thought bitterness would always reign and rule because there's nobody, there is nobody, hear me, there is nobody who is more powerful than him. He's fully God and he can do the impossible. He's all powerful. My children don't fully understand the concepts of what is powerful and what isn't. Um, in fact, for them, they've discovered something that I want to show you. For them, they've discovered that there's something that fixes just about everything. It's duct tape. Okay? My boys are duct tape fanatics. And in fact, they, um, they discovered that you can fix a lot of things with duct tape. Um, they learned that from me, actually. Um, <laughs> Because I, I like duct tape. It works. It fixes a lot of stuff. In fact, I learned this from a plumber in my former church. I had a, a big cast iron pipe, sewer pipe in my basement that was leaking one day. had a crack along it. And there was this black, oozy, smelly stuff coming out of it. And I'm like, that's not good. So I called him. And uh, he said, oh, we're like going to be gone for a couple days. We won't be able to get out there. You'll be okay. It's not going to burst. Here's what you do. In order to fix that hole, take a piece of duct tape and just put it over it. I'm like, you're joking that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get a piece of duct tape. I'm going to tape the crack. He's like, oh, yeah, it's not a problem. I didn't believe him. He's like, pastor, listen to me. Duct tape fixes 
anything. I'm like, okay. So I put the duct tape on, and sure enough, it, it worked. It held for three days. He came in and fixed the pipe. So I learned, I told my kids, and duct tape fixes everything. So they've, um, over their, their stellar career as children, so they've discovered the beauty of duct tape. They make duct tape gloves. See those? This is a, uh, you guys like this. This is a, uh, um, uh, an airsoft case complete with a uh, rope to put the airsoft gun and um, airsoft pellets in it. And then they even, um, in fact, they'll, they'll sell this to you if you want. Um, they even have uh, duct tape wallets that they make, right? So they just, they, they love duct tape. And, and I remember when they first discovered duct tape, they, um, they, they were like, Dad, you can, you, you can, duct tape fixes like anything. I'm like, yeah, I know. I taught you that, right? So they're like, yeah, it fixes anything. So I remember the first time they got this, and one day we're in the kitchen, and a, and a plate breaks poosh, on the ground, right? It's like in three pieces. And one of our boys walks up and said, hey, Dad, you could duct tape that, I think, can't you? And I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to go for that, you know? She's like, welcome to our house. This is the duct tape plates. It's a new Martha Stewart thing that she's got, a new line. It's not going to work, because duct tape doesn't fix that. And I have memories as a father, for you fathers on Father's Day, of my arm around my boys while they're holding a broken scooter or something else with tears streaming down their face, and they say something like this, Dad, is broken. Can you duct tape it? <laughs> and there's been many times where I've said, No, son, I'm sorry. Duct tape won't fix this. It's not, it won't fix it. And I rejoice in my heart that I will never, ever, ever say to them, I'm sorry, son, Jesus can't fix this. Never. Never. He fixes anything he wants. He's all-powerful, he's all-glorious, he's infinitely strong and mighty, and anything that he wants to do, he can do. So that needs to be the thought when you come to your prayer time. Don't just come. i got to inform you about this, Jesus. i got to tell you about this. Jesus knows. He knows what's going on. And instead of our, our little groveling, murmuring, complaining spirit, we need to come into our prayer time and say, Christ, I know you can do this. I don't know if you will, because your will is much better than mine. It's higher than I am. But Christ, I know that you can fix this, so we trust you. And today, dads, I want you to be a, a Gibraltar of trusting Christ, that when your family starts to crumble, you gather around and say, we don't know how we're going to make it, but we know one thing, Jesus can help us, so let's pray and seek him, kids. We don't know what's going to happen with this family, our own family. We don't know how we're going to work through these issues, but one thing we know, Jesus can fix it. He can and this is the worth of a Savior who the Apostle Paul says, look, you begin with understanding that you're dependent. You begin by knowing that you're inadequate, but then you don't stay there. No, you run to the fact that, that Christ can fix it. This is not some let go and let God mentality. Rather, this is just this perspective that says, look, he's worthy of my trust. Therefore, part of the battle of my soul is to get on my face and say, Christ, I choose to trust you. Third, it is that his sacrifice is sufficient. It says here, he makes peace by the blood of his cross. Two words that we're so familiar with, aren't we? Blood and cross. Blood is the thing that gives life in the Bible. Therefore, blood is valuable. It's something that the Bible looks at with great fondness and also fear. Even small children know that blood is a little to be feared. 
Savannah will have a little cut on her leg or something, and she has this cute little thing that she says when she sees blood. She says, uh-oh, Daddy. <laughs> uh-oh. She knows that that's not good. She knows that blood's supposed to stay on the inside of the Band-Aid, uh, inside of her body. And then what she really loves is a Band-Aid. Why are Band-Aids like the idol of children's hearts, right? <laughs> she gets a, a piece of dirt on her finger. Uh-oh, Band-Aid, Daddy. It's like she, can say, she can't even say Jesus yet, but she can say Band-Aid, right? <laughs> she knows, though, that blood is life. It's not supposed to be outside the body, and it's all when it isn't. And, and here is God. Listen, here's God with blood. Just think of that. Here's, here's God with life-giving blood, and it says the blood of his cross. Nobody sang, I'll cherish the old rugged cross in the New Testament. Nobody. The cross was a true emblem of shame and humiliation. And what happens here is Paul puts these two words together, blood and cross, by the blood of his cross, to tell us two things. One, that it was this vehicle of the bloody cross that Jesus used to bring us to God, and it also is an emblem of immense suffering and humiliation. In other words, that cross says, God saved you by this cross, and Jesus says, see how I died? You live like me. Thus, he says, if a man would follow me, let him take up his cross, or if anyone would come after me, rather, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So Jesus' suffering becomes the means of peace, but it also becomes a way to live. That we're to embrace a cross-centered life where we say, Jesus, I choose to suffer and be humiliated as long as the target is your glory. So listen very carefully. Suffering is never a waste when the glory of God is the aim. Never. All the suffering or the hardship you endure is never wasted when God's glory is on the line and it's the aim. So do you see how worthy Jesus is? He brings peace. He's fully God. He gives us a sufficient sacrifice. He helps us to understand how to suffer and why. And all of these things make him worthy of trust on our part. And that's why just doing it makes no sense. Why trying to just, just get the job done, just make it on my own. There's some of you today that just need to be done with just doing it. Instead, we need to embrace the words of the hymn writer like this, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take Him at His word, just to rest upon His promise, and to know, thus says the Lord." You know what that means? That means that you say the Bible, you see what the Bible says, you go, this is what God says, I will live on it. It means, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just from sin and self, to cease." That's the key. Just from Jesus simply taking life and rest and joy and peace. So you know what we need? We need a new theme. This just do it, this is killing people in sanctification. You, you can't just do it. You can't just find a way to get the job done. Instead, we need a, a new mantra. In, in preaching, we talk about the big idea statement, the, the little sentence that describes what it is that you're trying to say. So here's like the simplest big idea statement in the history of the church. Are you ready? Here's the simplest thing, but you know what? We need to do this. It's this. Jesus can. The whole message today is about those two words and getting them in your heart so that you live this way to say, I can't answer. Jesus can. I can't make it. Jesus can. It would be that you would have a different mentality about your life today. 
like this. I'm an awful sinner, and I could never pay for my sins. Right. But, say it, Jesus can. I've made such a mess of my life. I can't fix the pain in my wife's heart. I can't go back and redo it. It's in the past, and I can't fix it. Right. But Jesus can. I've been so hurt, I don't have the power to even think of loving them, let alone forgiving them. Mark, I can't create love for those people. Right. But Jesus can. i got a friend with some really deep problems. I, I don't know what to say. I've run out of words. I, I don't think I can help them anymore. Exactly. But Jesus can. Our son won't listen to us. His heart is so hard. His ears are closed. We can't get through to him. Right. But Jesus can. Life is too hard. Pain is too real. I can't do this again. I can't go back there. I can't do this. Right. But Jesus can. You see, there's no one like Christ. No one more worthy of your trust. No one more powerful than Him. And today what I'm calling you to do is to let go of a just-do-it mindset and ask Christ to help you to say, Jesus, you can. For you to be able to say, like the hymn writer, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust you. How I've proved you o'er and o'er. Jesus has never failed us. So why can't we trust Him? Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. And here's what I want you to pray. Ready? Oh, for grace to trust you more. That's what I want you to pray. I want you to say, oh, help me to trust you. Help me to take that statement Jesus can and help me to make it work. Because I can't do, I can't even trust you without you helping me. Oh, for grace, Christ, to trust you more. That's what we long for. That's what we yearn for. In College Park, and I was in Columbus, as Eric is just playing along, we just think of what God is saying. Maybe even just the stillness of this moment, the sense of God speaking to you. On this Father's Day, I envision some of you who would say, Lord Jesus, I need to move from just do it to Jesus can. And maybe it's in a specific area of your life that you've grabbed a hold of. And today, you're not just letting go. Oh man, you're like giving it to Christ and saying, you got to help me, Jesus, please. What I'm going to ask you to do is I want to pray for you, but I want you to respond with this. In a moment, if your confession today is, yes, Christ, I believe that you can, and I need your help to do that in this area, I'm going to ask you to stand where you are. People are going to know. They're going to see. I'm going to ask them to open their eyes. But you know what? You, you don't care. Come on. Jesus can. So if today, in your heart of hearts, there is this need to say, Jesus I need to say to you, you can do this. I need your help. I want you to stand now. Those of you who are sitting, it's not that you're unspiritual. 
But now I want you to be spiritual by opening your eyes and seeing your brothers and sisters who need your prayers. If you're a husband and you're standing and your wife is seated, wife, I want you to grab your husband's hand. Maybe you're standing next to each other, husband and wife. Grab each other's hand if you're standing. Even if you're not, just want to pray. It's fine. I just want to be able to pray for you. And I ask, Lord Jesus, that these who are standing, who by their physical movement are saying, Help me, Christ. Pray, Jesus, that you would be their power. You're full of grace, Jesus. You say to us that we can come boldly into your presence, and so we come that way today, believing that everything we need we've got in you. And so I pray on these people, renewed spiritual strength. I pray for renewed power, for renewed faith to believe that you can help them to reach into a hardened heart of a son, to solve financial problems, to give them wisdom to figure things out. Lord, that you would change the very nature of their hearts, that today would be a defining moment in some people's lives. And even today, that there would be some folks who'd say, Jesus, I need to receive you, and today I do that. So Christ, please, as only you can, minister grace to these people who you love and I love. And so we thank you that you are all-sufficient, all-powerful. You are able to do the impossible. And you gave your own blood to make that a reality. Jesus, you can. And all God's people said, Amen. I can't do it, but, say it with me, Jesus can. God bless you.